We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today we're talking wellness, the ambiguous catch-all term that scoops up a multi-billion dollar industry. But is the industry really in tip-top shape? Well, we'll be joined by journalist and author Rina Raphael to find out. Rina Raphael's writing takes a sceptical view of the wellness industry. It's the topic of her recent book, The Gospel of Wellness. And joining Rina today in conversation is Nelofar Hadayat, the award-winning broadcaster and journalist whose work focuses on social issues. Let's join Nelofar now with more. Welcome, one and all, to this Intelligence Squared event with Rina Raphael. She is a journalist who specializes in health, wellness, tech, and women's issues. Her analysis has helped the readers of the Fast Company magazine, the New York Times, and many, many other publications question uh, the beautifully presented but rather dubious world of wellness. Her wellness industry newsletter, Well To Do, covers trends and offers market analysis as well. She previously served as a senior producer and lifestyle editor at Today.com and NBCNews.com. Welcome, Rena, to the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. I love your book. I'll tell you why I love your book. Because it feels as though everything you've written in it, everything you've said in it, it's almost shaking my brain uh, and sieved a lot of the jargon and a lot of the fake things and, and slightly 
uh, misconceived things and made me question the reality of, of wellness and what it means. The bit that I want to focus on, uh, Hannah mentioned, is the false promise of self-care. What is self-care? What is wellness? Why is this even important to us in this day and age? Yeah. So I get a lot of questions actually about the subtitle. Um, and some people get offended by it. They say, well, what's wrong with self-care? Isn't self-care supposed to be good for us? And I say, of course it is. But real self-care, not the one that's being marketed to us currently. The current messaging around self-care is super problematic because what we're told self-care is, is essentially skincare and bubble masks and spa goodies. We're constantly being told that the onus is on us, the individual, to fix everything wrong in modern society. So you'll see this a lot with like workplace wellness programs where if you go to HR and say, hey, um, my team is emailing me after 6 p.m. My workload is is way too big and I can't handle this anymore. I'm not sleeping well. They'll say, well, ha have you tried yoga? Um, ha have you tried a CBD cream? And not only are you supposed to do these exactly prescribed things, but you're supposed to buy them and you're supposed to do them all on your own. So it's this very lonely, hyper-consumerist endeavor, and it's actually quite offensive. I will assure you that working moms are stressed today not because they don't prioritize bubble baths. Maybe it's because they don't have maternity benefits. Maybe they don't have childcare policies. Maybe they're working too hard. So this is kind of where the current iteration of what we call self-care is not real self-care, which should be more communal and really gets at the root issues of why we feel so unwell. In preparing for this conversation with you, I looked up the term self-care because I've only heard it ever in the context of bubble baths. Turns out it's actually a word used uh, in mental health wards by psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, specifically to do with being able to function as a human being. It seems to have been co-opted by the wellness industry to mean something, if at the very least lighthearted, then at the very worst, frivolous. Talk to me about the amorphous language that is so central to the business of wellness. Right. So within the book, I actually go into the more historic roots of self-care, which started as a medical term and then became kind of a more political term about certain communities organizing real healthcare for their own, which is very different than sort of the consumerist Sephora-based edition that we have today. But in terms of wellness, I mean, one of, you know, if we're talking about what the definition is of, let's say, wellness, it's basically the pursuit of well-being outside the realm of medicine. So it's essentially everything that medicine and insurance doesn't touch. So it's all the ways we want to physically, mentally, and spiritually feel better. So that can include anything from nutrition, fitness, sleep, stress management, you know, it's a rather vague term because everyone has different needs and everyone's so unique, you know, and there is no agreed upon definition of what well actually is. And it's why this industry has been able to grow so big because they keep shoving different things under the sector. It's this ambiguous, like nebulous term. So at this point, wellness could just as easily mean meditation as it does, you know, activated charcoal toothpaste. You know, the sector keeps putting more and more ridiculous items and sectors into self-care. I saw a headline recently that said something like buying real estate now with self-care. I mean, sure, anything, anything goes. The problem is, is that when something starts to mean anything, it starts to mean nothing. I, I want to know if you are have actually been into my house and seen my charcoal toothpaste because I feel like you um I mean you mentioned at least three things. Let's let's focus in on that then. You've mentioned at least three things that I myself practice or do. Um I'm going to come out and say it, you know, I am a self-professed wellness enthusiast. I love it. If I can buy it 
and it can make me feel like I'm doing something about my body, about my mental health, I will. I have the CBD creams. Uh, I have the charcoal toothpaste and I will go to the spa and buy the, the expensive lotions because they tell me that it's going to be good for me. What's wrong with that? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. You can buy whatever it is you want. And, you know, throughout the book, I even mentioned the things that I still buy. I mean, I still buy, first of all, I'm a recovering wellness addict, number one. Um, and I'm not above the Sephora shopping spree. And I'll still buy kombucha, but because I like the taste, not because I believe many of its exaggerated health claims, right? That don't really have the scientific evidence to back it up. So there's nothing wrong with all these things you want to buy. But, you know, I've spoken to researchers who say that even the act of putting one of these products in your shopping cart gives you that feeling of efficacy, makes you feel like, ah, I'm doing something for my health. Even just that act makes you feel better. And I think this is why I go into the book about how much this industry is based on belief and on your feelings. It's on psychology. It has not necessarily anything to do with scientific evidence or actual you know, research. And so once people realize that, that's fine. You can buy something, but don't believe all of the health claims because so much of this is just psychology. And unfortunately, sometimes it can be used in harmful ways. So, you know, there have been studies that say that people who, for example, will buy supplements, they put their faith in supplements. They'll say, oh, I've taken a supplement, so I guess I don't need to have any movement or try to eat my fruits and vegetables because I already did something for my health. So in some ways, that psychology can work against us. But if you want to enjoy these things, that's great. But just understand that a lot of these things are entertainment or fashion. It's not necessarily based in health or research. What I'm hearing from you is a sense of questioning that I should be approaching the concept of wellness, which I can like, which I can utilize for my own benefit, but I should be approaching it with perhaps a little more skepticism. will work mm -hmm. on me as, as we go through the show. When did wellness work for you? I mean, listen, hey, I'm not against going to a gym. I'm not against a lot of these things. It's just the way it's been exaggerated and the way that we've kind of two things. Number one is that a lot of wellness right now works on sort of predatory marketing tactics in the sense that we terrify people about certain ingredients. We terrify them if they don't buy this certain thing. And it's very prescriptive saying you have to buy this thing. And usually it's a very pricey thing or you have to do a certain thing. Um, or it's tied to an aspirational lifestyle where if you buy this clothing, if you do this certain act, then it will you know cure you of aging or put you into this other echelon. And both of those things are basically just kind of really bad and manipulative advertising tactics. So that's part of it. And I have to say that like none of this is new. You know, you mentioned that you kind of enjoy these things. I mean, this is part and parcel. We used to have medical roadshows over a century ago where we treated health like entertainment. And that's kind of what we're doing now. It's entertainment. The problem is, should we really be treating health and some of these medical conditions as entertainment. Now we've heard about how wellness worked for you. You, you speak in the book uh, about when wellness and the concept or the belief in it stopped working for you. Why did it stop working for you and when was that? Right, so um, I used to be a total wellness junkie. I tried every new fitness trend um, and every single new product. Um, at one point I went to um, an electric shock hit workout where they literally zapped you with electrical currents while you were trying to do a jumping jack. Um, I did underwater cycling. I bought natural wine. I tried all of the supplements. I did all of it. And because I was so interested in this topic, I mean, I moved to LA, which is like ground zero for wellness. And I started covering it full time for a business magazine. And two things happened. The longer I sort of followed these protocols, 
the more I started to realize that I don't think it was actually helping me. I was becoming obsessed with my body and I was becoming utterly consumed with my health. Um, I would almost say that I was fetishizing my health. So if my fitness tracker said I didn't get enough steps, then I would punish myself and say, oh, I don't know if I could have this meal later on. Uh, I'd get worried if I didn't take my supplements. It was just, it wasn't healthy. And at the same time, um, I was interviewing all of these business founders, everyone from Gwyneth Paltrow to the head of meditation companies. And um, the more I got access to them and their business plans and marketing tactics, the more I realized how much of their claims had no evidence behind them or very little, if any, uh, evidence behind behind them. Um, and the, the more I sort of dug into this and questioned it, I had to realize that this industry was hyper-individualistic. It was never looking at the root causes of why we feel so unwell and then putting pressures on the systems or society to fix that. Um, it was a very lonely endeavor. It was never looking at community aspect. Um, it completely ignored community and social support, probably because they couldn't direct you to an app to go download a friend. Um, it was hyper productivity pressured. I constantly have to be doing something. And it was hyper consumerist. Um, why was I always being told I had to buy something? And that's probably because there's no money to be made in telling someone to, oh, I don't know, go for a walk. Absolutely, unless it is your ring telling you to go for a walk, which my ring sometimes does tell me in the middle of the day. As I said, I'm a self-confessed wellness geek. Yeah, and fine. this is just a bit of tech that I've got for, 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 for my birthday recently. And it tells me when to walk, how well I've slept, how badly I've slept, when I can work hard and when I can't. And I've only had this, Rena, for since my birthday, so 12 days or so. And you just mentioned all the things that I'm falling into. I sometimes just casually go on the app and go, oh, I haven't done enough steps. I haven't burned enough calories. Oh my goodness, uh, I should be doing more. The idea of guilt, purity, uh, the idea of self-control, of goodness and badness, we're gonna come to all of that. But before we do, I wanna ask, when people finally uh, get a chance, and, and the book is out by the way, in the UK today, yes? Yes, today's uh, our pub day, yes. Fantastic. Well, we're lucky. So people should be going out and getting the book because once they do, they'll see that each chapter is divided uh, into, into really cool sub chapters. And that enables you to talk about one issue from many, many different facets and perspectives. Right. So uh, spe specifically the nutrition uh, section, which I found that chapter I found illuminating because I had so little idea about so much of where nutrition and health and the lack of knowledge we have about it come together. Talk me through about the multifaceted approach you took in the book and why you felt such a deep dive was necessary. Right. So I think some people assume this is a debunking book and it's not really that. I mean, there are aspects of it, but those books already exist. Um, I wanted a book that I thought spoke to me because I often felt like I sat, you know, I kind of looked at myself and I said, well, I'm not dumb and my friends aren't dumb. So why are we all falling for this? Why are we all so obsessed with wellness and why are we falling for a lot of the bunk? And so I wanted a book that really got at the root of why are people looking to wellness? What is going on in our modern society? What is going on in our institutions that is having people turn to this industry for solutions. There's a much bigger story. And so that's what's really, that, what's, that's what the book is about, is what is going on with women. Of course, some men as well, but women are more adoptive of this industry and are more drawn to it for very specific reasons, which I get into. Um, and then I go into some of the ways, the tactics that this industry kind of preys on you. So it's a little bit of both. And I, I didn't feel like anything really spoke to me. I thought there was a lot of making fun of women, not um, having any empathy for what they were going through. Um, it's also something I've been criticized for. People are like, ah, you should go harder against people. That I don't think you change any minds that way. Um, so that was what I was really trying to go through in the book. 
And you'll also notice throughout the book that each chapter has sort of like a little mini bit on uh, historic trends. When it's trying to prove that everything we're doing now and every trend, everything from clean eating to sort of the virtuousness of, of working out is nothing new. We were doing this already centuries before. We're just recycling trends over and over again. These are needs that are constantly, we have, humans have. So I thought that was really, really important to give people a bigger perspective of that. There is nothing new under the sun. And as much as Gwyneth or all these people want to tell you they're they're inventing something, they are absolutely not. I'm glad you mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow and her Goop uh, empire. I was going to say uh, I was going to say website. It's far far more than that. That the empire. I remember two years ago going onto the Goop website and finding a very handsome chess piece that was made out of pure crystal uh, for about six thousand dollars. And I thought to myself, I wish I was a better person so that I could afford this mm. um, wonderful set. But Goop isn't the only one. There are many, many wellness. Nice. Jessica Alba has her baby uh, range and uh, many other celebrities have their own endorsements or, or their own endeavors. Wellness as a lifestyle and as a way of seeking betterment for ourselves and wellness as a business plan are vastly different things. So please tell us about the difference between wellness as a business plan and wellness as a pursuit. Right. I mean, listen, a lot of these people who start wellness brands, they run from influencers to celebrities. They're not doing it purely out of the goodness of their own heart. Um, they're business people as much as they are um, personalities. And they're also looking to make a buck, which is why you don't see any of these influencers giving away usually their advice for free. It usually ends up with, now buy my supplement. Now buy my detox guide. Now sign up for this retreat. Buy this workshop. I mean, it, it comes down to essentially money. And the average person, I mean, it's just human nature that we trust the names we already recognize. Um, so we'll trust these people, even though they have no credentials, no mainstream acceptance. And it's partially because, you know, they have more access to us and more influence over us. You know, um, the average person gets what? I think 17.4 minutes with their doctor. You know, we don't necessarily have um, a relationship with scientists and researchers because doctors and researchers and scientists are very busy. They don't have time all day long to be on social media. So if you rewind to 20 years ago, if you had a health guru who wrote a book, it basically waited um, you know, on your desk side table to get 20 minutes before bed for you to read it and maybe you finish it over a couple months. It's a different game now. Now you have influencers who are accessing you several times a day. Better yet, you can DM with them and start a personal relationship. People just don't have that ability to do that with their doctor. And then you couple that with like losing trust in these institutions for numerous reasons. You know, in the book, I go into medical gaslighting and how a lot of women feel frustrated with medicine. You put those two together and I mean, it's like an inferno. I specifically want to look at this uh, schism between medicine and wellness. They seem to be contradictory uh, uh, as they are presented to us. It's no longer the view, as I experience it with my mates, that you would go to the doctor and the doctor will tell you, oh, you need to have some more vitamins or something to, to help your bones. And then they would prescribe you medicine. They would. The medical infrastructure sometimes expects me to go out and fend for myself. And look, Rena, you know as well as I do that walking into one of these health shops or these wellness centers is like walking into a minefield. You're just be bedazzled by all of the shiny things and all the wonderful packaging. So is the medical industry or our doctors, our GPs, letting women and men down by not helping us understand what that extra 
curricular wellness uh, sort of activities or purchases should be? Yeah. So there's two things. Um, number one, I spoke to some uh, physicians and researchers who said that oftentimes wellness seekers t- tend to be uncertainty avoidant. And so when they walk into these health shops, they're faced with certainty. You know, all these bottles and supplements, you know, basically say like, we'll cure you. It's these easy fixes that are so alluring. Whereas when you usually go to your doctor, they're not necessarily going to promise you that you'll get better, especially when it comes to complex chronic conditions, right, that have multi-factors. Um, they'll say like, well, if there's a 30% chance you might get better. Well, that doesn't sound as great as some influencers saying like, I have this green juice that will cure everything. I mean, Again, not an even playing field. But yes, I get into the book, I have two chapters on this, that a lot of people feel frustrated with medicine. Everything from the process, uh, the prices, the unaffordability of it, that they don't have enough time with doctors. A lot of women said that they felt dismissed or that their pain wasn't taken seriously. But a lot of other women will just say, I went to my doctor with a chronic condition and he just shrugged his shoulders and said, um, I don't know what to tell you. And one of the reasons that happens is because we just don't have enough funding and research into women's health conditions. Women are vastly behind men. In the US here, women weren't included in clinical trials until I believe 1993. So doctors literally don't have anything for many of these women suffering from chronic conditions. And the wellness industry, which you know does not have the clinical trials, I can assure you, often you know, offers that glimmer of hope for people and people want to believe in it. Again, this is where I talk about the psychology of it. They just so desperately, they're so desperate that they're willing to take that chance and they're willing to experiment with a lot of these ideas. Let's talk about sex, uh, gender, sex, the, the entire spectrum of, of kind of identity. Wellness has seeped into our common culture. You see Stephen Colbert uh, with his sort of uh, satirical take on goop uh, that, that he has kind of taking the mic or at least uh, trying to, to, pro- to expose this kind of wellness industry and the seriousness within which it takes itself. But wellness has seeped into cultural life. It's now become almost a caricature of women and at that women who are a bit silly. How has that myth been generated? And you talk in your book a lot about influencers and influencer culture, which I think feeds into that. But as, as a feminist, as a woman, I feel a little affronted the way sometimes wellness or women like me who take wellness culture seriously are treated. Right. You know, I make the point in the book that if a movie wants to portray very easily that a woman is high strung and affluent, they'll have her in athleisure wear on um, a stationary bicycle. I mean, that's always kind of the go-to. I see it all the time in movies. Um, yeah, I, you know, it became so popular that I think at this point, you know, there is a little bit of a correction and sometimes it can be patronizing. Um, and this is why I wrote the book, which is that I wanted something that spoke to a lot of empathy. Um, there are real reasons why people are, are seeking solutions and going to it. But, you know, as I say, you know, just because medicine doesn't have all the answers doesn't mean the wellness industry does. You know, I understand these frustrations, but we should really be putting our efforts into trying to fix, you know, our scientific methods, our scientific institutions. But instead, we're sort of just focusing on wellness. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I I don't like the way it's portrayed. I think I, you know, I make fun of the influencers and the people who I think are, you know, they call themselves feminists, but I don't think it's feminist to sell women bunk. 
and to and to exaggerate health claims, I make fun of them. I have no problem with that, but I don't think the average consumer should be made fun of. And I think, you know, I get into this in the book that a lot of women are interested in wellness because they like the identity that it gives them. Um, you know, I give the example of if a woman shows up at brunch and she's in her athleisure wear and she's like going, oh, I just came from a workout. Everyone will be like, oh my God, bravo, you're so good. Oh, I wish I was like you. And it's a way to gain respect. And especially in, you know, wellness offers purpose meaning, identity, community, a lot of the things that women feel like they're missing in modern society. And this is why kind of tongue in cheek say that, you know, wellness is almost adopting a regulatory framework, almost like religion, telling people how to live and offering all these things that almost organized religion used to give us. And it's not just wellness that does that, you know, you can get that from nationalism, social justice, politics, but that is something that if you understood what women are going through, you would have a lot more empathy as to why they're so into this culture. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Yes, thank you very much. There's a lot to think about there, Rina Raphael. Uh, thank you so much. I'd like to perhaps uh, reframe and investigate a little bit further three aspects of the darker side of the wellness industry. I want to talk about beauty, health and performance, and a form of control. Let's tackle that first one then, the idea of wellness and purity culture, specifically when it comes to beauty, whiteness, blondness, uh, Europeanness, thinness, uh, to the point of orthorexia, you know, a hyperfixation on nutritious food or, 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 or being healthy. All of these are prevalent in our culture, but it's all got a glaze of aspiration. Yeah. How does beauty and purity culture mix in a noxious way when it comes to wellness? 
Oh, I mean, all the time. I mean, you'll see these brands who just use health and wellness lingo to basically sell exactly what the beauty industry or the diet industry used to sell. You know, uh, I remember that um, I interviewed an executive at Weight Watchers when they rebranded as WW. And they told me something fascinating. They said, oh, we had our lowest performing um, signup rate this year. And when we asked basically our subscribers, um, you know, what was wrong, they said, you are a diet brand. And frankly, we are no longer willing to diet. And so what did Weight Watchers do? They decided to change their name to WW and add a tagline, you know, called wellness that works. And I mean, they tweaked it a little bit, but it's still the same thing of essentially like calorie counting, right? And so you'll see this all the time where um, you can no longer use the term diet, right? Because now that's considered a bad word, you know, thanks to the body positivity movement. So now you'll see it couched in language like a healthy lifestyle or clean eating. And you'll have literally influencers or magazines pair that with a very thin, white, gorgeous model. So they're just using different tactics. And you know, it's fascinating to me because before I was covering the wellness industry full-time, um, I was a fashion and, and beauty reporter. And all of the publicists and marketists and brand specialists who used to work in fashion and alcohol now work for the wellness industry. And they're using those exact same tactics. I get pitches from people that I worked with 15 years ago. And within the book, I even talk to people who are saying that they're actually adopting tactics from the alcohol industry to sort of have exactly as you mentioned, this aspirational idea. And this is why it's so offensive because again, we're talking about health here. We're not talking about a lipstick. The stakes are higher. And I'm sorry I'm getting so passionate about it, but it just pisses me off because I see women, you know, I had, I spoke to hundreds of women over the years and I included their voices in the book. They'll tell me they break down crying in a grocery aisle because they're like, what here is safe enough? Or what here, what here can I provide for my family that's not going to give them cancer? I mean, we're just driving women crazy. There's enough pressures in life. And now we also have to be healthy, well, skinny, beautiful. We can't age. It's too much for people. Sorry. There's no need to apologize. There's apps. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You're seeing the face of a woman who's impressed by another woman uh, more than anything else and, and uh, eloquently put. So I'll just tell you this now. I used to count calories as a child until the point where I would restrict food or, or throw up whenever I could. I now know that's an eating disorder. I, I managed to only wriggle myself out of it in my late 20s uh, after suffering with, with bulimia for seven years. And the only reason I was able to get out of it was because I had something in my life that was causing me great pain and anguish, uh, which I left. And I was able to, I didn't need it anymore. So, Rena, when you, when you get so passionate, women like me around the world, and there are millions, if not billions of us, are, are who you're speaking up for. So don't ever uh, feel, feel bad about that. To this day, if I don't exercise every other day, I feel guilty. Right. I feel like I'm not good. I feel like I'm, why should I be eating this donut or this croissant if, if I'm not a good person? So then let's maybe, let's, let's take that on. Yeah. And I just want to say, I, I appreciate your story. And I have a similar story of how clean eating gave me disordered eating. My husband came in on, on me one time in the kitchen and I was licking sugar off of candy I couldn't eat it because I was afraid of consuming something processed. So we've all been there. And women, 
I mean, have done so many fad di- diets don't work. 90% of them don't work, which is why we keep going from diet to diet to diet, putting our faith and belief in the next one. And they're exhausted. And I think that's partially also why some of these influencers are doing well and have been driven mad by the news too, where one day red wine is good for you, the next day it's really harmful. Like it, people have been driven mad. I call it nutrition mania by news headlines and new research that comes out and is very overly simplified. And so people are just looking, these influencers who say, I will take you out of the wilderness and simplify it for you. People are like, okay, fine, just tell me the answer already. So it's really, really women's relationship with food and exercise. I mean, again, this is why this industry makes both you and I so upset. Yes, absolutely. And and I've learned to almost, because I'm so scared of getting it wrong, I've almost learned to joke about it. Oh, you know, they're just a pair of leggings. They don't do anything, but I love those leggings. I feel like they make me a better person. So this is a really illuminating conversation. Thank you for being here with me. I'm, I'm, I'm actually honored to be speaking with you. And I want to talk now about control. Wellness is not just a form of control on women's bodies, their minds, their psychology, but it's also a way uh, that women use to control their lives. And that duality is fundamental. You speak about it in multiple ways uh, in the book. Talk to me a little bit about that, how wellness is a form of control and how some women use wellness to control their lives. Right. So this is a theme throughout my book that wellness essentially promises people control that, you know, if you eat the right gummies, if you swallow the right supplements, if you do this fitness protocol, then you will basically seize back control of your life, whatever feels unruly in your life. And a lot of things, I mean, wellness is actually kind of, you know, answering legitimate complaints in our society. You know, everyone wants to feel good and that's becoming harder and harder as modern life becomes, you know, more chaotic. You know, a lot of feels out of control right now. The news, politics, you know, poorly constructed medical system, lack of community, loneliness. Um, we live lives that demand too much of us. And this, you know, this industry dangles this promise of control. But it's more than that. A lot of these rituals, you know, researchers have found even just the ritualistic manner of doing something has both a soothing aspect, but makes you feel like you're more in control. Kind of like when you're cooking or, or when you're sewing, that repetitive nature makes you feel like you're more control of something and it diverts your attention just to that thing. So you could kind of block out everything else. You know, I have people who would tell me that if they went to a cycling, an indoor cycling class, they were like, that's the one time I can block out all the other stresses in my life. And I felt I was in control, like I was working on my body. And that I heard over and over and over again. The thing is, is that it doesn't necessarily, it's a lot of times a mirage of control, you know, or it can have detrimental effects. You know, I've been doing a lot of research lately. This is in the book as well into sort of these trackers, everything from sleep trackers to movement trackers. And it can help people be, you know, it does help some people. But again, and this is one of uh, my main points of the book, everyone is different. So this idea of telling people that this will definitely work for you is just not true. So for some people, it helps them be more active. But for other people, it has the opposite effect. It makes them obsessed with their stats and it stresses them out and it gives them disordered eating. They get nervous that they, you know, they didn't burn enough calories for the day. And with sleep trackers, they're only 78% effective. And sometimes what I hear from a lot of people is that it has the nocebo effect. It has a negative effect where they say they woke up and they kind of felt okay, but then they looked at their stats as said that they didn't sleep well and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm tired, I guess. So, you know, it can go both ways. And that's what I wanted people to be aware of, to not take everything at face value. 
Do not take everything at face value. Nelifer, do not take everything at face value. Okay, we've only got eight minutes. It's hard, it's hard. And I've only got sort of eight to seven more minutes before I get to the many questions that our audience have sent into Intelligence Squared to this conversation. Thank you very much for sending those in. You can tweet us. uh, uh, As we continue, the hashtag is IQ2 if you want us to be able to find your tweets. I have two questions left, but I feel like you are such a skilled interviewee that you're going to be able to answer them all into one neat bow for me and help me end the show. Um, You have in the past described the industry as, quote, out of control. Can wellness be saved? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it's really hard to talk about that because, again, you're talking about over a dozen subsectors and all of these different subsectors claiming that they are now wellness. I mean... Is beauty wellness? I mean, I guess maybe it could make you feel better, but like the fact that that's now considered, like skincare is now considered wellness, that's really different than let's say stress management or nutrition or fitness. I definitely think that we are seeing already um, a little bit of pushback. Um, I wrote a piece about this for the LA Times. I wrote another piece for the New York Times about this, about how we're already seeing the industry changing a little bit. Coming out of the pandemic, uh, there was such an emphasis on misinformation and on health. And so a lot of people right now want more evidence-based wellness. They're looking for scientific evidence. Also, they were barred from a lot of these pricier things during the pandemic uh, when they were stay-at-home orders. So they didn't get to go on the fancy retreats. They didn't get to go to their gym. They didn't get to buy all these things. And they kind of realized, hey, I can kind of get the same effects by, I don't know, going for a walk. Um, So there has been a slight push back to it, which I think is helping the industry change. At the same time, what you are seeing is some of the industry say, hey, we still want to be a part of this. So we're going to do what's called science washing, which is essentially manipulate scientific findings or use um, manipulative scientific lingo to sort of get consumers and, and trick them into thinking that it is actually um, something that is has scientific evidence. You'll see this a lot with terms like clinically tested. What does that mean? So it was tested. That doesn't mean it was effective and doesn't mean there was a clinical trial. It doesn't mean anything. So you'll see this all the times where they use kind of scientific lingo now. So it's changing for the better and for a little bit of the worse. And you'll see now also a lot more scientists and researchers join social media. They're trying to push back against all these non-evidence-based influencers. So some things are changing and I'm glad about that. Whether or not you can fix this industry, listen, as I say in the book, we've had wellness and hucksters for centuries. That is never going away. That is part and parcel of our cultures. They're always going to be there. The best you can do is to arm yourself with the right information, use critical thinking skills, and probably just realize if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. (laughs) Rina Raphael, thank you so much for talking with me. We are not done yet. It's time to throw it to our audience who, uh, as a hive mind, have presented me with with a plethora of questions, all of which more interesting than the last. Let's kick things off then. Uh, We've got a question here. The name isn't specified, uh, but the question is, is there a generational difference do you see in the way that millennials and Gen Zers approach self-care and wellness? Yes, completely. I actually just wrote a piece for the LA Times about how essentially the wellness vibe is shifting uh, and you can thank Gen Z. Gen Z is really um, fighting back against the productivity pressures and perfectionist mandates that really sort of define the last era of wellness that was really millennial based, right? I'm talking about the influencers who are in a gorgeous kitchen 
kitchen the size of a small European country, presenting their gorgeously assembled acai bowl. They hate that stuff. They want something more authentic. And I had so many college students who told me, hey, if I every now and then want to have an Oreo, that's fine. I'm not going to drop dead. Everyone on social media needs to calm down. Can I just tell you, so so I, I used to be God, I come across as such an absolute weirdo in this in this chat, but I used to be obsessed with those girls uh, and that culture. I don't know if, if anyone watching this will be familiar with girl boss culture. You know, oh, yes. rise and grind up at you know up at five in bed at nine. I was obsessed with it. I I genuinely thought a bowl of acai would cure me of, of any of these problems. But and I want to de- develop that question of work. So much of wellness feels like work and we're expected to be good at it. And, and women in the workplace as well, it, it's, it's work. We do both. We seem to do it in the office or wherever we, we tend to do it, me in the studio, you on your writing desk. And then we come home and we do more work. We, do, we get on the, on the bike, we get on the treadmill, we get on the food, we cook the right foods and things. How much is, is that concept of feeling utilized, feeling useful, something that is, is generational perhaps? And, and how does that feed into wellness? Yeah, um, I would say Gen Z has really caught on. Number one, they're not as impressed with celebrity influencers as much. Um, And they have really noticed sort of the patronizing nature of self-care discourse. You know, they're exhausted by the toxic body image pressures, you know, what could be called the gymification of hustle culture. Um, They don't want some sort of math-like system for eating a damn sandwich. They don't like the exclusionary consumerism that equates health with the right purchases. Um, They also don't have as much money as millennials, so they're a little bit bit more cautious of that. Um, And so you hear more and more Gen Z say like, maybe being with friends is wellness. Maybe listening to music is is wellness. Like maybe I don't need to buy all this stuff. Um, So they're really kind of pushing back against this. And I go more in depth into it in the uh, LA Times. But yeah, you know, it's funny. I also did this other piece about sort of how self-care discourse is changing. And I'm really glad about that. But, you know, I spoke to some therapists who told me that teen girls are now stressed out that they don't have enough time for their self-care routines. And so they're stressed about not doing enough skincare masks. So sometimes, you know, self-care can stress us out and then we need more self-care. It's like, you know, a snake eating its own tail. It's a circular sort of thing where we're told we have to do all this work. When in reality, we kind of know what we need to do for our health. We should try to get more movement. We should try to eat more fruits and vegetables. We kind of know. And I'm not saying that's easy for everyone. If you're working two jobs, you don't have the money for it, it's not simple. But we kind of know what we need to do. We don't need all these explicit protocols and all of this stuff and gear. I feel like you're talking to me then. I accept. Oh, no, I accept. no, 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 less of an attack, more of a gentle sister nudge on the shoulder. I was like, come on, girl, you don't need to, you don't need to fall hook, line and sinker for every one of the headlines. Uh, let's, let's work on that then. Why do you think it is a question that has come in over, over the chat, over the question function? Why do you think women are the biggest victims of the wellness industrial complex? Oh, yeah. Um, I go, um, that's like one of the main themes throughout my book. Um, Well, number one, I'll say that if you're to believe the polls and the surveys, women are more stressed than men. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, you can even just look to the example of working moms. Like they t- still take care of the majority of the housework and chores and child rearing, and they have to work. Um, a lot of them are more dissatisfied with mainstream medicine, and they're the ones who interact more with medicine. And by the way, I say this as someone as the daughter of a physician. I have respect for the medical industry. I do think that they there are some improvements that are 
quite necessary. But, you know, they start going to the doctor, even in their teens to a gynecologist. They go through childbirth. They just have more experiences. And the more experiences you have, the higher percentage that you might have a bad experience. But also, again, as I mentioned, because this industry is adopting tactics and adopting the playbook of fashion and beauty industry, um, they're also more preyed upon right? Because we've now conflated wellness with beauty, uh, with anti-aging, with thinness, you'll see all these different industries be able to take advantage of women because, you know, what's the hottest industry right now? It's wellness. It's no longer even fashion, right? (laughs) The majority of women have more athleisure wear than any other type of fashion in their wardrobe. So those are just some of the reasons, but I go into them throughout the book about why women, you know, have been targeted and why they've lodged more complaints against several industries, not just medicine, but nutrition and all these different things. Fantastic. Rattling through here, another one coming in. Great question from Raul. Aren't men just as much targeted by Mm -hmm. the wellness industry as women are? It's just packaged in a different way with protein shakes and energy drinks. What do you make of that? You do touch on this in in the book as well. So let's unpack that a little bit. The alpha man complex, this idea of needing to be the top of some sort of pack. I don't don't understand where that comes from. Educate us. Yeah, definitely. Well, unfortunately, women are happen to be uh, the number one consumers. They also happen to be more of the founders. Women are more uh, represented in this industry, both in terms of consumers and also the people who are pushing this industry. Um, But yes, of course, men are targeted as well. It comes very differently in terms of protein shakes. Um, I have a chapter on biohacking that really gets into men. Um, And, you know, A lot of women turn to wellness because it offers solutions because they are so stressed, so fatigued, so unhappy. Men have those same exact complaints. I give the example of of why biohacking really took off in Silicon Valley. And just one reason is because in Silicon Valley, the difference of being even 1% better than your peer could mean that you get that promotion. So the idea of biohackers coming in and saying, I have the exact way where you only need four hours of sleep and you can work at 30% more cognitive function. I mean, that's really appealing to men who are exhausted in this industry, working so hard. And so they'll fall for it. A lot of biohacking, same thing, very little of any scientific evidence. So men, you know, they're also targeted for, you know, muscles and having buff bodies. You know, they all, you know, are told they can look like Chris Hemsworth if they do the certain fitness protocol. So they have their own uh, separate pressures and their own needs, but I don't think it's as big as what's going on with women. The the idea of, I think throughout the book, what I noticed was this constant referring to confusion, to purposeful, mandated confusion that is deployed by the wellness industry. So long as we are confused, I mean, you you talk a lot about the marketing around food, around food labeling, around how uh, you could say something is organic, for example. You don't have to tell anyone what that means. I mean, so long as you've got the word on the packet, nothing else counts. That confusion definitely seems to be driving a lot of people uh, uh, to buying more, if not more expensive things that it seems to be rather than a glitch, it seems to be a function. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you ask the average consumer, um, gosh, you're so terrified of GMOs. Do you even know what that is? Um, I think there was a survey done that most people didn't even know that foods have DNA. Um, and, and, and yet they were shunning uh, GMOs. Or if you ask the average person like, um, What's homeopathy? They think it just means herbal medicine. It does not. Um, it just, it's more than that. Um, if you ask people what organic means, they think it means that no pesticides have been used when actually it's organic, meaning less synthetic pesticides. So there's a lot that people just don't know. But the problem is, is that all these ideas and a lot of these appeal to, you know, are 
appeal to nature fallacy where we just assume everything that's natural is better, which completely ignores, you know, cyanide, asbestos, poisonous mushrooms. Not everything that is natural is better for you. Um, but a lot of these things are kind of repeated nonstop in the media and on social media. And that's why I fell for a lot of them. I mean, even some of my reporting early on was incorrect because I was like, well, all these big legacy media outlets are reporting it. They must be right. Well, they didn't do their homework either. They didn't check with researchers or scientists. Um, oftentimes, I would check a lot of these claims with scientists uh, and top physicians, and they would just be howling with laughter. Gosh, that's a stark one, that. Janie, Helen, and Ginny, I will come to your questions if I can. But first to Marie, does the wellness industry need more government regulation to restrict the, the, the kind of claims you and I have been talking about uh, that they make? That's a tough one. There's a lot of debate around that. I would love to see a little bit more reining in of um, the marketing claims that are allowed uh, on certain labels. I think if you go right now into a supermarket, it's just screeching labels. And I mean, it's just it feels like an attack almost. <laughs> it's almost like crazy. I'm not sure how they differ in the UK versus the US. Um, but you know, you'll see a lot of uh, labels that do something like this. Uh, it boosts cognitive function. Uh, function. It uh, supports uh, gut health. It aids in you know X Y Z. You know, they use words like supports, boosts, aids. Um, they never use words like cures or fix. Um, or effective treatment. And there's a reason for that. And it's not because they don't have a thesaurus. It's because they're afraid of something called a lawsuit. So they use these very vague but permissible terms that you can't really define. What does that mean to support something? What does that even mean? Can you measure that? You can't. So they use these terms that are technically permissible, but like really confuse the consumer. And, and I would love to see a little bit more. I mean, I don't know if it's official regulation, but I would love to see, you know, some sort of crack down on that. I just don't know how that would work. That, that, that's a, I think that would be really interesting uh, to think about. I'd love to, to hear more from you on that when you've kind of uh, formed the thought. But yeah, I welcome everyone to start noticing the term boost. You'd be shocked. Gosh. And then you're like, and then you're like, wow, why is it only supplements? <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, it's in kombucha. Oh, oh. You've, you've, you've picked me to the post. Helen wants to know something. Uh, how do you unpack the connection? And I, this, this is such an important question. I really want to, to spend some time in it. How do you unpack the connection between wellness and morality? Uh, that sense that we need to be good. And that's from Helen. Right. So throughout the book, I talk about healthism, this idea of this virtuousness that's tied to, you know, working on your health and that you're a better person. And it's often tied to hyper individualism that like if you're a good person, you take care of yourself and you're not going to be a scourge on the medical system or on whatever it is. Um, and listen, I, I think that's kind of baked into our cultures. Um, and oftentimes, you know, this is oftentimes why you see really extreme protocols or extreme diets doing really well because we really don't honor or appreciate in our cultures the moderate, right? If someone starts telling you like, hey, I started incorporating more broccoli into my diet, you're like, okay, who cares? Someone's like, I'm on this crazy diet. I'm only allowed to eat this. Number one, we feel better that we've restricted ourselves, that we were able to do it, right? It gives us the sense, like I was talking about, you know, 
the putting something in your shopping cart and it gives you a sense of efficacy. It makes you feel like, oh, I'm so good. I'm putting in so much work. But then other people are like, wow, you're on that diet. I don't know how you do it. So like there's so much that sort of works that's psychological about all of these things. But yes, we just assume, you know, oftentimes we assume everyone who's thin, and I mean, magazines really did this to us. Women's media did this to us, that everyone who's thin is healthy. You have no idea by looking at someone as to whether they're healthy just because they're thinner. You don't know what type of conditions they have. They could have multiple eating disorders. Um, but we've kind of been trained to think like this, that people that look a certain way and behave a certain way are more virtuous because they work hard. And especially in America that has this very, its roots in this Puritan work ethic, there's nothing we love more than hard work. We treasure it more than anything. I've got a, I've got a more of a comment next that I'm just going to read. You don't have to because you're not a... a immunologist. I'm not going to expect a response from you. But uh, Renee de Paula from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil says, how can the rationality of science, how can it compete uh, with the seduction of magical thinking? Uh, Renee says, I live in Brazil and parents are resisting to vaccinate their kids due to hoaxes and superstition. So again, that idea of confusion, that idea of restriction or making defined or clear decisions based on science uh, rearing its head. Let's move on now to a question. Oh, I'll uh, just say from- one thing that um, it's it's really, really hard once someone already believes in something, once they've gone down the rabbit hole, it's really, I mean, that it becomes like a religious belief. And this is, you know, kind of the tongue in cheek title of my book, but it's really hard to get them out of it, especially because people start to over identify with these values, right? So that when you attack the argument, they feel as if you're attacking them and their identity. Um, so it's really hard to pull them out of it. I think there's a lot more. I think several researchers have talked about the fact that you're better off doing pre-bunking and teaching people the critical thinking skills first so they don't fall for this stuff. Because especially when it comes to anti-vaxxers, not all of them, of course, but then they join a community. And so again, it's like telling someone who's religious, like, hey, your religion isn't true. And they're like, well, I don't want to leave my church and I don't want to leave this community. And I, I feel good believing in this. So that's where it becomes a little difficult. You know, If we could teach a logic class or a lot of critical thinking skills in high school, I don't know. There's been a lot of ideas that have been floated around. There's a lot of, there's a, and, and uh, I'll tell you one thing, the, the gospel of wellness is a great example of preventative uh, medicine or wellness rather than a cure. A question from Ginny then, even if one only follows evidence-based wellness strategies, can one still be too obsessed with wellness? I'll answer that. Yes, and now I'll let you. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think uh, I don't think it helps us to become this obsessed with our bodies. I mean, this is the thing too that I get into in the book that it's such a focus on the self. And again, there's just no emphasis in this entire industry on community or social support. I think it's making people lonelier. I think it's driving them crazy. Um, again, it's really moderate advice that I think works the best in terms of again, you know, you should get some movement in. You know, you should. Try as much as possible, if you can, to try to eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, But being obsessed with it, I mean, I think this is what's leading people to be unwell, this obsession with yourself and not seeking as much communal connection. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, in in the couple of minutes we have left here, your top three or top five tips for when we do go out into into the wider world, how should we face wellness? How should we treat it? What should we think of it? How can we reframe this? That's about 10 questions, but you you take whichever you want. Yeah, I have a bunch, but I would say the top are just be wary of emotionally manipulative language. Um, I see this all the time, especially with like 
stuff that's targeted to young moms. Like you'll find this with like organic snack brands and stuff. But something that's trying to terrify you that if you know if you eat quote unquote toxic chemical ingredients, this and that, you're really endangering your family, and you need to buy our product if you're a good mom. Um, or anything that's really kind of tugging on your emotions. That's an obvious tactic, and I would be really really wary of what they're selling because they're trying to manipulate you. Um, and they'll even do this with things where they try to assume that if you buy their product, you know, you're going to be transported to a pure era. A lot of these things kind of um, prey on our biases, the most notable one being uh, the appeal to nature fallacy, which assumes that everything that's natural is better for you. Um, I would also say um, examine who you follow for health advice. Is this someone who has the right credentials? They went to schools that taught it. Um, are they accepted within the mainstream circles of which they should be respected, meaning uh, you could follow Dr. Oz. I mean, he went to medical school, but he's no longer accepted within medical circles. So uh, just be wary of who you follow and take your advice from. Um, and if you're really, really interested in a certain condition or um, a certain product, I would go look up uh, the guidelines for that association. If you're uh, interested in a certain condition, what is, you know, the, you know, this gynecological association say about using this product. And I would trust them because that's a consensus of experts. So you're not just focusing on one person. Let's see. And the third, you know, again, if it's too good to be true, stay away. You have to have like some reasonableness about this. You know, there are no quick fixes uh, oftentimes. So a lot of these things take more work, especially when it comes to our health. And as much as we want to believe in it, you have to have some practicality here. I would say those are my three top tips. Fantastic top tips. And what a great place to end this conversation. My thanks to Rena Raphael, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, everyone. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.